You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Well, good morning, Grace Point. A little bit delayed, but that's good. It works. It works. It's good to be with you. My name's Joel. I'm one of the covenant partners here. Uh, and every now and then, uh, Travis does let me preach, and we talk about, oh, I, I can't get, I got to do the joke. Uh, so this is finally one of the passages that he has me preach that's not one of the hard ones. So I'm not sure why he had me preach this morning, because it's pretty straightforward. So, but, but anyway, he's let me preach this one this morning. Um, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm not making fun of Travis uh, and serving here at the church, uh, I, also, I, I put on a uniform, and I'm a chaplain up at uh, Creech Air Force Base. And so it, this weekend, uh, this is Veterans Day weekend, so if you are a veteran, if you've served in the past in the military, in armed forces, or you're serving currently, would you please stand now so we can recognize you and thank you for your, your faithful service to our country? Awesome. We are. Uh, you can. Yeah, you can be seated now. Uh, we are. We are overjoyed. Creech, or uh, rather, uh, Grace Point is is a church. Whether it's here in the Northwest or also at Ann Road, uh, you throw a rock in any general direction in our church, you're going to hit a veteran or somebody who's currently serving. I, please don't throw rocks, people. But um, but that's that's a pretty cool thing, and uh, and I'm thankful to be part of a church that recognizes that and honors that. A lot of churches sometimes they don't really know how to handle military families, and they don't really know what to do with us, and, uh, but I, this, is just my, this is just Joel talking here, but uh, I have been really pleased to be part of this great church that understands the transient nature and seeks to understand the language and the values and the culture that define us as military people, and nevertheless draws us into the body of Christ, so I'm thankful for that, so cool. All right, well, we're going to get into John chapter 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. Thank you for reading that, Danica. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we do have them uh, out in the hallway there. What do we call that area again? The connecting, the connect table. Sorry, I keep forgetting that. I didn't write it down. Uh, But out at the connect table, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do preach and teach out of that, so we encourage you to have one of your own. We have them back there in English and in Spanish, and you can also download apps. It takes about 10 seconds. Uh, so if you read it off your phone or read it out of a book, it's either way, it works for us. I encourage you to do that. Um, in this passage, Jesus is using this, going to be using this analogy uh, of, of the good shepherd. I love analogies and metaphors that Jesus uses in Scripture, and uh, we're going to talk about this in a moment. And, and really, has, some of this has to do with defining leadership and what leadership is and who are leaders and who aren't. Because I think Jesus has some very pointed words to give to people who thought they were, uh, perceived themselves to be leaders of the people, and Jesus wants to change their notion of that. Uh, so what is leadership? Uh, well, some, some leadership experts would say that if you have to tell the group you're in charge and that you're the leader, you probably aren't. You ever been in, don't raise your hand, especially if the person's sitting near you, but have you ever been in an organization where... Someone had to keep telling you that they were the leader. And maybe they had a position or a title, but they weren't really the leader. Um, so how do you, and 
John Maxwell says this, he says, if you think you're leading but no one is following you, you're just taking a nice long walk. <laughs> you ever see that in organizations too? And, this, and that's actually a great illustration for what we're going to see here today because of the way shepherds lead their sheep. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but how do you understand who the true leader is? And I would say, and, and a lot of leadership experts would say, again, that, that with, if, you have, if you have a title or you're, you're at the top of the organizational chart, your organization, you're top of the food chain, that doesn't necessarily make you a leader. It just says that somebody or somehow you got a title and a position and, and maybe a corner office or something, and, and you have a position of leadership, but you're not necessarily a leader. So how do you tell who the true leader is? A lot of folks would say, when, when, when you're in a meeting, when your organization is in a meeting, and you're discussing a very important topic, and a very pointed, difficult question comes up about that particular topic, who do people look to first for the answer? The leader. And uh, by the way, it might not be the one sitting at the head of the table. I'll give you an example of that from the world of sports. Um, there's this team that played, uh, well, they still sort of play uh, basketball in the city of Chicago. They don't play it nearly as well as they used to. Uh, called the Chicago Bulls, arguably in the 1990s, one of the most significant dynasties ever. And they had uh, a player that played for the team who's an above average player. <laughs> Without doubt, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. And uh, he played with this guy, Scottie Pippen, who was not, not that much, I mean, pretty close to him in, in talent. And then they had this, this great coach who knew how to, how to manage all these personalities and talents in, in Phil Jackson. And they won six championships, six world championships in the, in the 90s. And uh, they were really hard to beat, but oftentimes they, they did have close games. And every now and then, in fact, one season, they lost 10 times. So, so every now and then they would lose as well. Uh, but they would have close games and... And it's often the case when, when you have a close game, last, last couple of seconds, and, and you, need, you, need one, you need one basket to win a game, uh, the head coach will call a timeout and kind of huddle his players. And Coach Jackson uh, would call that timeout. Coach Jackson, he was the head coach. He got paid to be that. That was his title. He, he stood on the sidelines and, and did all the, went through all the motions of being a, a head coach. And he was a great coach. And he would, he would draw up a play, as, as a typical coach would do. And he had a lot of influence on his team, but... <clears throat> and I watched this happen when they would show, uh, they would show video of the, of the timeouts. They wouldn't, you couldn't necessarily hear what they were saying, but he would draw up a play, and then before, before they would break, what would, the team, what would the players do? They'd look at Jordan, kind of validate, like, is this the play we want to go with? It's great, Phil. You've got this great mind, great basketball mind. You've got this great plan. But, Michael, is that really what we want to do? I mean, they wouldn't say it necessarily, but they would look that way. So who was the true leader? Jordan was. Um, in this section of John, Jesus distinguishes himself from those who claimed and believed themselves to be leaders of the people, but really, in actuality, were not. He makes a strong case that, in fact, he's the true leader, and that those who, would, who should have been leading the people were merely hired hands, and I'll define what that means in a few moments, who didn't really protect the people from the thieves and robbers that were around them. And he also describes the sheep. 
the ones who would truly follow him. So let's get into this text. Actually, let me pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get really into this text. Lord Jesus, as we, uh, as we come before you this morning, as we open up your word, we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would illuminate it. Uh, Holy Spirit, that you would come into this place, open up our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear what you have for us to say. This is your word, and I pray that I would declare it faithfully. And Lord, that you would use it to impact our lives. That you would use it to transform us, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us. Meet us right where we are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this section, again, Jesus uses this metaphor of the shepherd. Uh, even though Jesus wasn't a shepherd himself. He's a carpenter by trade, but... This idea, this metaphor of a shepherd is not, was not really unique to Jesus. In fact, it was one that the people he was speaking with probably would resonate a great deal with because it's one that's used throughout Scripture. You know, David, who was Israel's most beloved king by trade, was a shepherd. And there are stories in the Old Testament of his courage in defending a flock against wild animals and uh, the manner in which he, he conducted himself. There are numerous references in the Old Testament of God being a shepherd over his sheep, most notably. We read it earlier. We're going to read it again later in the message out of the 23rd Psalm, that the Lord is our shepherd. Uh, so lots of examples, lots of use of that metaphor before Jesus uh, brings it up in this case, but he identifies himself very forcefully as the good shepherd amongst people who would be familiar not only with that metaphor, but also true shepherds and shepherds with their sheep and how they actually conducted themselves. So but he uses uh, some metaphors. He carries it through the entire section. And there's a few different groups that he uses in metaphor that I want to kind of break down. So we're, we're going to kind of go all over the place in this text. I, trust me, we'll, we'll have a flow that'll make sense. But I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit in, in this section. The first metaphor that he uses is this whole idea, this, this notion of a thief and a robber. He says in verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, those terms are not interchangeable. They're related, but they're not interchangeable. A thief is someone who, who gets something by deception, uh, pursues and, and steals something by deception. A robber is one who steals, but not simply through deception, but also through acts of violence. And, and he wants to say more comprehensively that there are those who are out there that have, multi, that have a multitude of motives, but all are, are, are not good when it, when it comes to pursuing the sheep. They're not the true leader of the sheep because uh, the sheep don't listen to their voice. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. And their motivation, verse 10, is to... Steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's their motivation. Thieves and robbers are deceptive. They, they want to take what's not theirs. They, do, they don't have the best interest in mind for the sheep. And they're only interested in serving, only interested in serving themselves. And it's likely uh, that Jesus has in mind here false teachers, uh, false prophets who were prevalent in his time. And certainly... Even before that time, there were many who claimed to be miracle, miracle workers, even those who claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, they were people who gathered large crowds, uh, large followings of people until their story was exposed <clears throat> or the leader died. And it was prevalent, uh, and we know this even 
after the ministry of Jesus, even after he was ascended into heaven, because uh, the, the, the Jewish leader Gamaliel talks about this in Acts chapter 5, and they were trying to figure out what to do with Peter and John and the rest of the, the apostles as they were continuing to spread the, the, the message of Jesus. They, they were trying to figure out how to stop their influence amongst the people. And Gamaliel says something very interesting. He says, starting uh, chapter, Acts chapter 5, Starting in verse 34, it says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. That is, Peter and John. And he said to them, he said to the to men that were there, the Pharisees, he said, Men of Israel, take, <clears throat> take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For, this plan, uh, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they were used to false teachers in their midst. Uh, Gamaliel recognized this, and he, he says there's a difference between false teachers and true teachers because if, it's, if they're false teachers, it's something that will be here today and gone tomorrow. They have no standing. They have no, they have no long, long-term power. And he says if it's a movement of God, you won't be able to stop it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter, Peter warns about false prophets too. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There were false prophets among the Israelites. There will be false prophets as well that challenge the church. And he, he doesn't say it's a possibility. He says, no, no, this is really going to happen. There will be false teachers among you. So what do you do with false teachers? What do you do with the thieves and robbers that seek to deceive us, seek to derail us, seek to send us in the wrong direction? Well, there are certainly false teachers in our day. I'm not going to name them by name. But there are those who claim that they've restored a lost church. There are those that claim they've got a corner on truth. You hear false teaching that, you know, if your faith is strong enough, God, it's God's will that you'll always have health. That healing is a certain reality. That God's blessing is always reflected in material success. If you just want to love God more, then it's shown by material success. And if God's not giving you material success, it must be due to some sin in your life or something along those lines. Those, those messages are out there, and, and we could probably come up with some others as well. But false teaching is something that we have to be careful to avoid among us. That's what Peter talks about in 2 Peter. <clears throat> it's out there, but how do we avoid it among us? Well, our preaching and teaching can't be centered on anything but the gospel and upon the inspired and inerrant word of God. That's the first thing. I read an article this week, and, and they were talking about this, and they said, you know, if, if we want to derail ourselves or want to be derailed, then let our preaching just be about great stories and pop psychology. That's a great way to derail us. The motivation in the, of the thief and the robber is to deceive and exploit the sheep. And oftentimes they use deceptive methods and they might even use some, some Bible verses but that have nothing to do with 
not, not tied together with the gospel, but to serve their own means and their own purposes. Motivation of the thief and robber is to deceive and exploit, but Jesus declared that he would build his church. And not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the great I am, is no thief and no robber. So that's the thief and the robber. So then the second metaphor, the second group of people Jesus wants to identify and sort of expose are the hired hands. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand gets paid to do a job. It's in his job description, take care of the sheep. Okay? And he may take care of the sheep. Why? Because he's getting paid to do so. But he's not the shepherd. He has no skin in the game, if you will. He has no enduring commitment to the sheep. The difference between a hired hand and a shepherd, as I was thinking about this this week, the difference between a hired hand and a shepherd is kind of like the difference between renting a car and owning a car. Now, when I rent a car, you know, when I go on, on trips and things, I, I go and I, I get the car, or I go to the desk and I, they... they I pay for it for however long I'm going to need that and sign a rental agreement and then I go out to the car and it's usually a car that's way too small for me and, and uh, I, I try to shove my luggage in it and uh, so I use it for the week or whatever and um, when I return it to the airport, uh, I, I may or may not clean out my Burger King wrappers. You know, I, you know, I may not and I don't really care how it smells at that point because it's not my problem anymore, right? If during the week it gets some scratches or some dings on it, assuming I've got insurance and everything, uh, I don't really care about it that much. It, you know, it's, it's not my car. I mean, it's not like I intentionally, you know, put it places where it's going to get hit or whatever, but I don't really care about it that much. I used to do this thing. I don't do it anymore. I used to do this thing. I don't know why, but um, when I had a rental car, I would, I would use the, the windshield wiper fluid as much as I could through the week, so it was totally empty by the end of the week. I don't know why. It's weird. It's a weird thing I would do. But that's, that's how you handle That's how you treat a rental car, right? But you don't do that to your own car. You, you treat your own car with, with a tremendous amount of care. You, you maintain it. You service it. You make sure it's not got any problems. You inspect the tires. You, you get the oil change generally when you're supposed to. When, when, when Laura and I have had brand new cars, um, and please don't judge our current cars by this because they're not brand new anymore, but like with her car, when we got that brand new, they, they, she and the kids would make fun of me because we would go to a store or someplace and I would, I'd park as far away from all other cars possible, you know, because I, I didn't want those parking lot dings on the car. If you see her car now, you can see all bets are off now. It doesn't really matter anymore because uh, we've scratched it enough, and it's just a car. But at, the, at that point, it, it meant a lot to us. It meant, well, it meant a lot to me to make sure that it didn't have scratches and stuff. But even with that still, you know, I'll take her car or my car, and I'll, get it, I'll go get it washed, even with the scratches on it. I'll get it washed. I'll, I'll vacuum it out. Uh, and she really likes that. She's, her, one of her love languages is acts of service. She, she really loves that when, when I wash her car, when I vacuum it out. So once or twice a year, I'll do that and make them happy. No, I just... Um, <laughs> But you, you treat the car differently because you own it. 
right? It's your car. Um, the same is true of the tired hand. He, he may watch the sheep because he's paid to do it, because it's part of his responsibility. But man, once danger comes along, he's out of it. Wolves come along, does, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not paid to do that. It's not part of my job description. I'm walking away. The shepherd doesn't do that. The shepherd says, no, no, those are my sheep. I own those sheep. I care for them. I take, I, I, I take great interest in their health and well-being. I'm going to defend them. The hired hand is analogous to the Jewish leaders. They thought they were the leaders. They presented themselves as the leader of the people. In fact, they felt threatened by Jesus that he was taking away their power and influence with the people. But they had no skin in the game. They didn't really care about the people. They, they, they cared about the power and influence that the people brought them, but their motives were self-serving and very distant. Jesus was different. Jesus tells us that he is the shepherd. But not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd. So let's talk about specifically the shepherd and how Jesus describes the shepherd in this text. Let's look at chapter, verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. He says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So a couple of things we learn about the good shepherd in this case, the shepherd enters by the door. So he doesn't try to get in by, by deceptive means. He doesn't try to jump over the fence or, or, or climb underneath uh, the fence or anything of that nature. No, he goes through the door as an owner of the sheep would be expected to do. His sheep hear his voice and they respond to it as he leads them out the pasture. They hear his voice and they respond to it. Like I said earlier, the, the, the thieves and the robbers, they may try, and this was, this was often true in the ancient world, where uh, those who were trying to steal the sheep would even try to mimic the voice of the shepherd or mimic his call. But sheep were smart enough to not follow because it wasn't their shepherd's voice. They knew their shepherd's voice and they knew it well. They were trained for his particular voice or sound that only the shepherd could make. They knew that sound. But it wasn't just that they knew the sound. In fact, Jesus changes verbs, even though it's translated the same way, later on in the text. And in this point, he says the sheep uh, uh, know him by name. They know his voice. That is to understand that they know something about him. They know some facts about the shepherd. They know the fact. They've studied it. They, they know the fact about how, how his voice sounds. But he takes it a step further in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The verb there is different than the verb that's mentioned, that's used earlier. Translated the same, no. But the verb that's translated here is much more of an intimate uh, word. He says, he says I know, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. And just to follow that analogy, he says, just as the father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So it's not that Jesus knows about the Father, knows what the Father sounds like, knows facts about the Father. No, he knows the Father intimately. And he says, just how I know the Father intimately, my sheep know me and I know my sheep 
intimately. I have a personal relationship with them. I know their values. I know who they are. It's much more deep than that. It's a caring, intimate relationship. Much more like a, like a parent with a child in many ways. So what does Jesus, the good shepherd, do? How does he act? How does, what is his agenda with the sheep? We already know the agenda of the thieves and the robbers. We know the agenda of the hired hands. But, but what's the good shepherd's agenda? His agenda is to be selfless and caring. Look at what it says again in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. His motive is life. His motive is for the sheep's good, not for the sheep's harm. Jesus, the good shepherd, is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the sheep, as we will learn. Jesus, unlike the hired hands, is totally committed to his sheep. He would give his own life. Let me look again at verse 14. Uh, read verses 14 and 15 again. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, that's quite a commitment. It's quite a commitment for a shepherd to say, I will lay down my life. For my sheep. I'm not, a, I'm not really an animal person. Um, we don't have any animals at home right now. Um, over the years, we've had, we've had dogs. When I was a kid, we'd have dogs. Basically because I lived in the country and there was a stray dog. Somebody would pick it up and say, hey, that's your dog. Uh, so that's how we got dogs when I was a kid. And then um, <clears throat> in our family, we've, we've had a grand total of two dogs. One of them, um, one of them died. We had to take her to... Uh, we just had to put her down because she had some really bad illnesses. The other dog we had for a long time, um, we couldn't take him with us on, a, on, a, uh, on, a, on an assignment. No, long story. And so we gave him to a woman who had like three dogs, and she treated dogs like kings. I mean, she, she fed the guy better than I got fed. And um, so his name was Mickey. Uh, he was our dog. We picked him up uh, my first assignment, and then we went, to, uh, we went, went from California to Texas. And we had him. Um, I wasn't really attached to Mickey at all. He was a, uh, he was a golden, uh, golden retriever. A good dog. A uh, little older. Um, slept a lot. Kind of slept and ate. He was kind of like a, kind of like a bad teenager in your house. Uh, slept and ate a lot, but didn't have a whole lot of responsibility. Um, we would take him running with us. And eventually, we were running faster than him. And when he was done running, he would just kind of sit down. And we'd have to wait for him. And it was just, you know, that was just kind of frustrating. He was also a dog that he thought it was fun, like if the gate was open, then he would run. And when we lived on base at one of our assignments, that was not cool. Because, you know, having a dog loose on the base, I was always afraid he was going to like run on the flight line or something and cause some international incident. And I'd, I'd get in trouble for that. But he thought it was funny. And I would chase after him. Laura would chase after him. He would listen to her more than he'd listen to me. Um, but he still wouldn't listen to either one of us very well. And one time in particular, somebody left the gate open in the backyard. And he got out. And, and I said, you know what? It's Texas. It's hot. I'm not chasing after this dog. So if he, you know, he knows where we live. He's a smart dog. He knows where we live. If he wants to come back, he'll come back. I'm not chasing after him. I'm not doing it. I, I was like a hired hand. I'm not doing this. 
And he did eventually come back. Uh, and he just kind of sat there and kind of looked at me. Anyway, the lady, the lady that took him, the lady that took him in, she loved him to death. He was living on living on heaven. She sent us pictures of him. And he got really fat, but he, he really enjoyed living with her. But uh, that's what a hired hand does. A hired hand treats a dog like like I treated Mickey. I'm like you know, if you come back, great. Take care. I'm not chasing after you. That's not how Jesus does things, right? Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, and he's not only willing to to chase after his sheep and bring them back to the fold, but he says he's going to lay down his life. I would not lay my life down for Mickey. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. But Jesus says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will lay down my life for my sheep. By the way, we also learned something. We'll come back to that again, but we also learned something about Jesus and his authority, as he speaks boldly in this text, he says that he, he lays down his life by his own willing choice. So it's not just that Jesus is this great shepherd, watches over sheep, but he wants, us, he wants us to know that he's God because he has this sovereign authority to lay down his life and pick it back up again. Look at what he says, in, starting at verse 17, he says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one compels him. No one will take his life. No one else can take it from him. He will voluntarily give it up. His life is not in the hands of the Jewish leaders who seek to kill him. His life is not in the hands of their Roman counterparts who eventually will kill him, but not of their own authority, but because it's the will of God. He said frequently up to this point in the gospel, I don't know if you notice this or not, but oftentimes Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He continued to say that. What he means is, my hour for my, for my ultimate sacrifice has not yet come. That's going to change, by the way, in a couple of chapters. won't steal the thunder for that, but that's going to change in a couple of chapters where Jesus is going to say, my hour has come. And things will significantly change in the story of Jesus in the narrative. But Jesus says, I'm in charge of my life and death. What a powerful thing for him to say. But Jesus is God. Jesus has that authority. Additionally, Jesus says, I'm the shepherd for all. He says that there are sheep not of this sheepfold that he has to draw in. In Christ, there is one body, there is one sheepfold. In verse 16, he says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. His current audience, the Jews and those who come, uh, uh, this Jewish audience, he's saying this Jewish audience, I have, I have more of this flock that aren't simply Jewish. He's inviting the Gentiles as well. He's inviting you and me. Jesus says, I'm inviting Jews and Gentiles to come to me and to be united in one flock over which I am the shepherd. There's a hint of that in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, he says to his disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Teaching, teaching them to obey, or rather to observe, all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, 
to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, so that they have one shepherd and one flock. This is the great shepherd that we follow after. A shepherd who cares for his sheep, a shepherd who, who cares enough for his sheep to say, I will die for my sheep. A shepherd who says, I'm in charge, I have authority to put down my life and bring it back up. I'm the great shepherd that's going to unite in one fold sheep from all nations. There's one more group I think that it's important for us to spend time that Jesus references and uses as a metaphor, and that's the sheep themselves. Now, I used to think, I, I'm not sure I want to buy into the idea that sheep aren't smart. I used to say that all the time. I'm not sure I want to say that because I'm a sheep. Uh, you're a sheep. But, but one of the things that, that about sheep that's very important to understand is that they have a natural instinct to follow. They, they, they follow others. They have, a, they have a natural flocking instinct. So they, they move together in groups. And, uh, and, and they follow. They will follow. They, they have a natural instinct to follow. And they'll follow each other. Sometimes they'll follow each other uh, in bad ideas and they'll go the wrong direction. Again, kind of like teenagers. One person has a bad idea and the rest of them will follow after that. Um, I used to work with teenagers. That's why I say those kinds of things. But um, they have this, this natural instinct to follow after others. And so they're prone to follow sheep in directions that they shouldn't go. And that's why they need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to give them guidance and direction. And the Jews understood that metaphor. They understood that shepherd metaphor because... Again, it's encapsulated in, in, Psalm 20, in Psalm 23. We read it earlier. I just want to read this again. The psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So we are sheep that are desperately in need of a shepherd. And David describes this in, in Psalm 23, why we need a shepherd and what he provides. We need a shepherd because he's the one who truly takes care of our needs. We may think it's our job that takes care of our needs. We may think it's um, the government that takes care of our needs. No, David's very clear. 23rd Psalm is very clear. The one who takes care of our needs is the Lord. He provides for our rest and our feeding. He leads us beside still waters. He provides for our rest and our feeding. He cares for us. He restores our spirit. David tells us that he restores his soul. He restores our spirit, our wayward spirit that is, is prone to wander away from God. The shepherd calls us back into relationship with God. He calms our fears with his presence. His rod and his staff are designed to keep us close under his watchful care. Because again, apart from the shepherd's rod and staff, we are prone to wander away into danger, into difficulty. And so we need a, we need a shepherd, folks. We need a shepherd. It's not just that we have a propensity to stray. It's that actually we have gone astray. Isaiah 53.6 says that we've gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on Jesus, the good shepherd, the iniquity, the sin of us all. And so the gospel is a message to you and me that, 
that we are sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. All of us have been like wayward sheep, turning away from the voice that calls to us, turning to our selfish desires and self-centered tendencies, foolishly believing that we can lead ourselves. But thanks be to God that Jesus is indeed our good shepherd. He calls out those who would hear his voice. He laid down his life to pay our penalty. He invites us to follow after his good leadership, to enjoy communion with him, to embrace the love that only he can provide. So is Jesus your shepherd? Is Jesus your shepherd? Because even as we look at this text, there are still two groups of people, those that hear the voice of God, those that hear the voice of the good shepherd and respond to it, and those that refuse to listen to the good shepherd. Let's start at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he is insane, why listen to him? Others said, these are, these are not the words of one who is opposed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, there's two different types of sheep in those last three verses. There are the sheep who know the voice of the shepherd and willingly go to it. Those are the ones who recognize and discern that the things that Jesus is doing are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. But these are the words of a good shepherd. But those that are not of the fold don't hear his voice and they say, well, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Simply put, his flock hear his voice and respond while those not of his flock don't recognize his authority and his pastoral care. We have a great shepherd, folks. A shepherd who loves us enough to call us out, to call us to himself. We have a great shepherd that Scripture tells us the analogy that's used in Mark chapter 15, that of the, there's 99 sheep and our great shepherd will go after the one that's, that's wayward and bring them back to the fold. The hired hand says, you got 99 out of 100. It's pretty close. It's close enough. The good shepherd says, no, no. All of my sheep will come into my fold. The shepherd who cares about us and loves us enough to sacrifice himself for us. My hope and prayer is that the voice of the great shepherd calls out to you. And that you'll surrender to him and embrace his care. Confessing your sinful condition to him. Receiving the forgiveness that only he can provide. And living in intimate fellowship with him. Maybe, if, maybe you are a follower of Christ. And maybe you have strayed from the flock just a bit. Jesus invites you back to the fold. Again, just, as, just like he left the 99 to seek after the one sheep that left the flock, he seeks after you and won't stop until he finds you. He invites you back to the flock, not with condemnation, but with joy and celebration. So let us delight today in the care and love and leadership of Jesus, who's not just our good shepherd, our great shepherd. Let's pray together.